Welcome to The Bounce Podcast. I am Bob Lapine. I'm the pastor at Redeemer Community Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. I also serve on the board of the Great Commission Collective. If you listen regularly to The Bounce, you know about GCC. The Great Commission Collective is an organization that is committed to church planting and to strengthening pastors. In fact, that's our mandate. Plant churches, strengthen leaders. That's what we're all about at GCC. You can find out more when you go to our website, gccollective.org. We have uh, hundreds of churches in the U.S., in Canada, and now around the world, networks of churches around the world. We are excited about what God is doing through GCC to plant and strengthen healthy, gospel-centered churches in our world. And so if you'd, again, like to find out more about GCC, go to gccollective.org. On this edition of The Bounce, I'm going to uh, share with you a conversation I had in front of a live group of men, in this case, talking about the marks of authentic discipleship. One of our assignments as pastors is to make disciples, to help people grow spiritually and to know what it is we're trying to press into their lives. What are the marks of authentic discipleship? If you're trying to say this person is a healthy, vibrant disciple of Christ, what are the markers you should be looking for? Well, Dean and Sarah, who is a pastor and an author who lives in Tallahassee, he's the pastor at City Church in Tallahassee. He's written a number of books, including a, a great new book on purity. He's got a book called The Unsaved Christian that I think is a, a powerful book. He did a, a Bible study uh, a number of years ago on the marks of a disciple. And so I asked him to spend about 45 minutes with us talking about what does a healthy, vibrant, thriving disciple look like as compared to just a generic churchgoer. In our churches, we have both, don't we? How do we help those who are regular churchgoers become vibrant, healthy disciples? And do we know what we're aiming for? That's the conversation I was able to have with Pastor Dean in Sarah. I got to know Dean a couple of years ago when he wrote a book called The Unsaved Christian, which I would commend to all of you. It's a, a great book that talks about the difference between casual cultural Christianity and authentic biblical Christianity and really diagnoses well what is common in our culture today. I mean, the, the culture even with the declines going on, the culture says 60 plus percent of Americans say they are Christians. If that was true, America would be a very different place than it is. There are a lot of people who are saying I am who aren't, which Jesus said would be the case. And his book helps us understand what's the difference between a person who would say, yes, I'm a Christian and we worship at NASCAR. You know, that's, that's one of the the, the different things that, that he'd talk about. So it's a great book. He just wrote a book called Purity that is another excellent book about the whole purity culture issue and um, how do we stand for purity in this culture? How do we help young people stand for purity in a healthy way? Because uh, today there have been some very unhealthy ways that the church has gotten involved in promoting purity and there have been a lot of unhealthy ways that the culture has gotten involved in ignoring any kind of biblical purity. So he takes it right back to what scripture has to say, and not the, the middle way, but the scriptural way to say, here's what the Bible says about purity. It's another outstanding book. So I'm a big fan of him, his books and his writing. You didn't really write a book on discipleship. This was a, a Bible study. Ex explain yeah. what you put together. Yeah. 
I rarely had it on my desk. It's uh, it's called Marks for Disciple, and it's looking at how. Um, so I kind of always got a little frustrated and, and roll my eyes a little at whatever in kind of Christian culture you would hear things such as like never think you've arrived following Christ. You know, think you're comfortable. If you get comfortable, then you're probably gonna. And it's just kind of. And I used to wonder, well, how do I know if I'm doing okay? Like, right? Like, how do I know if my Christian life is actually in the right direction? Yeah, I, I like to kind of encourage, occasionally hear some encouragement, like, maybe I'm in the right place. But how do I ever know if I'm just kind of where I'm supposed to be on my Christian life journey? Uh, so I looked at, there's probably 10 or 12, who knows, I looked at what I was called six different markers of kind of a checkup to see how I'm doing. And uh, those were, you know, it's in a Bible study form that Lifeway did. I did a sermon series on it, and they reached out, and they wound up... Um, uh, taking it on. And uh, the first one is, is the repentant life. When we go through it, Bob? No, hang, hang on, because before you go through it, I want to ask you this question. I remember two decades ago, a, dis- a debate or a discussion going on. Um, is it possible to be a Christian and not be a disciple? So are there two categories or two classes? Can somebody say, I'm, I'm a Christian, but I'm, you know, it, it's the whole lordship salvation controversy, yeah. that kind of thing. Just respond to, uh, can a person be a Christian and not a disciple? No, I, I do think that there's obviously a place, as Jesus said, for a childlike mustard seed faith. So I don't think you need to be a theologian and be a disciple. I know that's not what you asked. I don't think you need to be a, you know, a black belt in theology or Bible study uh, to be a faithful Christian. But if you're not following Jesus in your Christianity, I would be very concerned that the Christianity you're claiming is not the Christianity of the Bible. Uh, so my first response to that is, is no. And, and not even in a Lordship Salvation kind of sense, even though I do believe in that, but more in a what you're describing as Christianity is not Christianity. Uh, that's why we call it nominal Christianity, right? In name only, that's kind of what nominal means, you know, like kind of barely. Uh, and so the whole point unsafe Christian that I tried to make was that for far too long, we have seen cultural Christianity as a discipleship issue. We're going, hey, if Bob would just get more serious about Jesus, get back to church, read his Bible more, prioritize things, you know, they will be on the right track rather than going, no, it's an evangelism issue. Like, they actually don't know Jesus. It's not about good habits or not. They don't know Christ. They know culture or family heritage or lingo. They don't actually know Jesus. So I don't think you can be a Christian and not actually be about Jesus. And and disciple so, at its yeah. at its core, you're defining it. It's a student. It's somebody who's a follower, somebody who has a rabbi, and then they are following that rabbi. Yeah, follow me, right, as Jesus said. So mm-hmm. I think it really has to be focused on the person of Christ. And your beliefs about Jesus lead you to worship of him. And I'm not even saying it has to be consistent all the time, right? We're, we're all, uh, you know, recovering inconsistency people all the time. But it has to, has to have an actual object of faith. And our faith is about Christ and following him and being his people. So if we're not interested in being his people, then we shouldn't claim his name. Yeah. Is what I would say about that. Yeah, yeah. And it's all, it's, and I do believe it's all grace. My goodness, it's all grace. But the grace to become the children of God. That's who we are now. And part of the reason for the disconnect between, for people who would say, well, I'm a Christian, but maybe not a disciple or who would be nominal in their faith is because we got to own some of this. We've not done a great job in some cases of presenting a clear gospel and making it clear what somebody is saying when they say, I want to be a Christian. Oh yeah. Since Jesus has been so often presented as a life coach, then why wouldn't people do bare minimum? I think it was Don Carson who first said, 
that people want enough of Jesus to be associated with, but not so much for inconveniences, anything. Right. Yeah. And so uh, we need to make sure that we understand that following Jesus really does interfere with our lives. Uh, so we're preaching some kind of gospel that's void of repentance. Well, it doesn't actually invite people into life with Christ. I think we're really failing people and missing the boat. And this happened, happened far too often. I mean, really, a lot of what is, is described as church growth and evangelicalism today really has Jesus as your life coach, your motivator, uh, the one to help you get to the next level, willing to define what that means, but next level of your life, fill, you know, kind of hopes and longings you have rather than actually being the savior of the world. Yeah. And so uh, I think that makes sure we're really clear on what we're talking about, what we're inviting people to when we talk about life as Christ. Or he's your therapist to heal the hurts that you've got yeah. going on. Or yeah, there, there are all kinds of different motivations that um, it, they may be enough to, to introduce you to Jesus and get you on yeah. the right track. But if, that's what, if, if you're coming to Jesus thinking, I'm here primarily so that I get my needs met, you, you've really, You've you've come for the wrong purpose, right? Yeah. Well, I think what's happening in that kind of world is they're taking the secondary blessings and benefits of the gospel. I mean, Jesus does heal our pain, and He, you know, is what we look to for guidance and wisdom, and you know, and He is who we go to when we're weary. He invited us, all those who are weary. All right, but those secondary benefits of the faith are not the gospel. So what's happening is they're taking the secondary benefits of the faith and elevating them like as the faith and as the message itself. And that's where it gets backwards, which is what happens down the road. You begin to realize that in your own worldly mind, you can find those things. Again, they're cheap substitutes, but you can find those things, the things this world. You can find something that makes you feel better, right? You can find something that helps you get motivated, right? We have apps for those kind of things now, you know, but, but we can't find a substitute savior. And so I think we can make sure we're clear first and foremost that it's about Jesus crucified and risen, he died in our place for our sins, and that he's inviting us to life with him, not just a thumbs up towards him or admiration, uh, but life with him. And that really matters a lot if we're going to really make disciples. So if, if and I want to get to the, the six elements that you've identified. Yeah. Uh, but if, if we're in a conversation with somebody who doesn't know Christ and we're talking about I, you know, I came to Christ because there was a longing in my life. I was empty here. I needed purpose or how, how do we avoid the trap of selling features and benefits and how do we present a clear gospel to somebody? Well, I would hope that we would see those things as, as kind of on ramps or kind of tools or aids to help us set up a gospel conversation. Uh, so we'll say, hey, okay, those things, I hear you and I want you to have those things too. But keep in mind, like all of those things are, are kind of temporary fixes. And the reality is first and foremost, your biggest need is to be forgiven of your sins. Like your biggest need is to actually know and follow Christ, to be counted amongst his people, be reconciled to God uh, through his death on the cross. Uh, so I, I just want to like pivot that to someone. Again, and there's a, and you're going to know your relationships better. You're going to know the pace of the conversation better than I am. I'm not sitting in that coffee shop or in that living room table or dining room table. But I would say that we tell people see that yes, those things can be found in the Lord and praise God they can. That's not ultimately what Jesus was about. He told us that. Like he, you know, when they when he's healing people, like there's moments where he says, Your sins are forgiven. And people are saying, wait a second, what's he doing? And he says, Well, who can forgive sins but God alone? What's 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 you know, what is easier, you know, what is difficult to do? Tell someone to get up and walk or to say your sins are forgiven. Right? As in this is the primary need. So I just think we never get away 
from first and foremost, an atonement-centered gospel. Mm -hmm. And then from there, let the rest play out. And I'll also maybe tell your own story. Say, hey, you know what? One of the things that made me interested in Christianity or, or, or made me listen a little bit uh, was that I had these things go on in my life. And I realized the reason I had these things going on in my life was oftentimes because I was trapped in this world. You know, and I was believing there's more to be gained by disobeying God. There is to be gained by obeying Him. I got to go around God from things I'm looking for in my life rather than right to Him. And I came to my senses that really Jesus is the greatest blessing. He is the greatest treasure. And it took someone sharing that with me to see what it actually means to be in Christ and reconciled to Him and forgiven. So I would just use those not as bad things, but as on-ramps and as tools to point people to the actual greatest thing, which is Christ. These guys have heard me say, and our church has heard me say that uh, in, in my own situation, it wasn't until somebody clearly showed me um, how, how significant, how deep an issue my sin was, rather than I, I'd always thought my sin was a few bad habits that I had or those, you know, those, those minor things in my life. I was a mostly good person who'd done a few bad things. And if Jesus had to die for that, I guess that's between him and God. But when somebody said, no, you don't understand how bad it is. When I understood how bad it was, I understood how real the grace was and how big the grace was. And that was a, a transitional moment for me. Yeah. And I think that also is linked to remembering who our sin is against. Yeah. Right? There are sins against God. It's not just a mistake or a mess up or a momentary lapse. Like we understand who our sin is actually against. That's when the rest of that begins to happen and make sense. And that's why if we have a really small view of God, like a big guy upstairs, glorified Santa, grandpa figure, Yoda from Star Wars, you know, kind of person or our idea, then, then we're not going to think our sin against him is a really big deal. And so that's why you see who God is uh, as holy. And so then, then we'll understand how amazing it is that he's also loving and that he's merciful because we realize how, that he's holy. Okay, so let's get to the first of the six in your list of markers of, of authentic discipleship. Yeah, and my wife and I had a miscommunication, so she took my laptop to Starbucks for a paper she's working on. So sorry, I'm on my phone. The picture's probably not what you want it to be, so I apologize for that. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, so the first marker is a repentant life, right? So, so not just a repentant moment at conversion, which that's critical as well. Oh, and we repent. You know, Jesus repent. The kingdom of God is near. That was the first message out of the gate. And when Jesus came on the scene, uh, so, uh, so, but a repentant life. That all, I think it was Luther who said all of life is repentance, right? So that means that we're regularly, I don't know, we're walking around as Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, hanging our head to the ground, and talking about how terrible we are. I think it just means that we're aware of the fact that, that we sin and that because the grace of God is so real and true in our lives, we see in 2 Corinthians 5, it says Christ's love compels us. In Romans 2, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Uh, that if we're not rightly repenting of sin in our lives, turning away from that, turning to God, we could argue we're not really actually grasping the kindness of God and the love of God and of course the holiness of God. Uh, so I really do believe that a, a mark of a healthy Christian life is one that's not defensive, uh, that doesn't have all these stored up sins inside, but one that is regularly repenting of sin. In, in on a practical level, as you go through a week, what does is, what is a repentant life look like for you? Yeah, I, I, I really do think it kind of begins in prayer. You know, I, I think that's kind of the closet where that happens, where in your prayer, you're, you're just kind of aware of, of kind of what's going on that, that maybe other people don't know, but God knows. 
And, and, and that's a place we got to get to. That's why our theology and doctrine matters. I mean, how often in our world are we more concerned about who else knows about maybe sin we're involved in rather than the fact that God already knows, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> like it's just, yeah. So, um, so I think what it looks like is just a regular rhythm of repentance. I've been to my confession, right? Where, where you're actually like confessing your sins, you're aware of them. You know, think about the psalmist, you know, search my heart, O God. You know, see if there's any wicked way with in me, and we don't see it as a as simply a as some kind of a grudgy duty, even though there is duty to it. Um, du- duty and obligation is not a bad word in the Christian life. I think we actually miss, miss that our contemporary culture a lot. There's a good kind of obligation, uh, but I think that is something that we're just aware of regularly, and that we also are listening to other people we invite into our lives that can point things out. So in our um, in my wife's side, our our premarital counseling meeting for couples. We, we walk them through this rule we have called no attorney. And maybe you've heard this before, Bob, in all your marriage discussions, family over the years, but no attorney means that if I like really need to talk to you about something as my spouse, I mean, it's just you and me, and I just need to share how I feel about something, that if I really just want you to listen and not push back right away, that I can claim no attorney, which means you have to receive it first and hear it and not simply say, oh, but, 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 you know, and start, start making your defense you know, Johnny Cochran style, you know, or, or something like those lines. So I, I think we need to, I don't think there's a place in our relationship with God uh, to play attorney because God already knows and he's already declared us not guilty of our ultimate sinful state against him. Uh, so we realize that we are forgiven. That allows us to continually be forgiven and want to be in right fellowship with him. And First John, when it says we confess our sins, he's faithful and just forgive us of our sins and, and cleanse them all in righteousness. That verse is written to believers. You know, first and foremost, that's not an evangelistic verse. Does it apply evangelistically? Of course it does, but it's very primarily to believers. Right. Uh, so I, I think it's that. I think it's that regular rhythm of like confession, of listening to people, of trying to, and that's hard for, especially for guys. That's hard because we want to have this image. We want to, you know, always kind of push back. Who are you to say this to me? What about you? Yeah, yeah, we just kind of fight that kind of stuff. I think it's the, that battle of believing that this is a right pattern of our lives. And and I I think and I think this is really good. First of all, I think there are a lot of people who have a a wrong view of what repentance means. They think it means uh, shame and sorrow. And yet the biblical definition of repentance is very pragmatic, isn't it? Absolutely. Yes. It's a lifestyle. It's a it's an action. It's a step. You know, it's it's something that you're you're choosing to do to say no to to, to take off that sin, to clothe yourself with Christ. Uh, so it's really an invitation, you know, to do right fellowship with with the one who's already brought you to himself. Yeah. Uh, so I, I deeply mean to see it more as a, a a act we do that really is actually for our good. <laughs> you know, that's that's what's so incredible about it. Like it's it, not a whipping stick. It's, they, it's not a whipping stick. It's an invitation. The the word the the word metanoia means to have a change of mind, a change of heart that leads to a change of behavior. And it, it's the, the illustration I've used, Dean, uh, over the years has been to talk about uh, a time I was, I was driving to Indianapolis. I was on I-65 coming out of Nashville, and I took a, uh, a, a turnoff to get gas. And when I got back on the highway, I was on the wrong road. I was headed to Paducah instead of headed to, to uh, Indianapolis. And I realized I'm on the wrong road. And I've said, now I could have pulled over right there and put my head on the steering wheel and just wailed and wept and go, oh, what a terrible person I am. But really the urgent need was to turn around and get back on the right road. And that's, yeah. that repenting is, 
oh, I'm, I'm going in the wrong direction. I, I'm going to change my mind and get head in the right direction again. Because the other destination is Paducah. <laughs> so, exactly. You picked up no on that. From there. So, but right. But 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 here's the reality: like the other destination is a place we don't want to go. Right. Right. It's this world. It's the temporary. So it's past. It's the flesh. Right. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. That First John talks about when the actual place we want to go is the life with God. I think a lot of guys are hung up on repentance again because of the guilt and shame idea associated with it. But if we understand that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, that forgiveness has already been granted to us, now to be honest about what's going on, we we can do that boldly before the throne, not, not in any kind of a, a bragging way, but we can come and say, okay, Lord, I messed up again, and I'm not proud of that and and I I feel the weight of that but I'm here to confess and to I want to turn I want to change yeah if um if God doesn't condemn you anymore why do you condemn exactly right I mean so let's really actually believe in the sufficiency of our salvation okay so a lifestyle of repentance is one marker and if somebody is not Uh in that rhythm if that's I, I would say these are ways to diagnose somebody's spiritual health to say if somebody is not in a place where uh, a regular rhythm of of repentance, confession and repentance is not a part of their life, you'd say, uh, we may need to to run an MRI here and and uh, figure out what's going on spiritually with that person. And something I worry about, especially with a generation a little younger than me, I'm 41, so kind of like a generation of like maybe a decade or so younger, is that the whole word authenticity which is a good word, but is actually keeping us from oftentimes pursuing healthy habits. Because we feel like if I, the assumption is I don't feel totally into it, right? If, I, if I'm just not feeling my Bible study or feeling my prayer time, or if I feel it's an obligation, that's a bad thing because it's inauthentic. I don't know where we got that from. <laughs> but that's such a contemporary modern understanding of, that, of life, right? That's not the scriptures. Uh, to where I think we need to see the routines of the faith. Like routine is a good word. Like 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 it's a good word, and I think that is oftentimes where disciples are made is in the routine and mundane things of life. Uh, so like going to church on Sunday morning is a good routine. Reading your Bible is a good routine. Uh, a time of prayer, good routine. You know, there's just certain rhythms and habits in your life that you want to see as a discipline. And you're not every single time gonna go, I cannot wait to read my Bible or I'm so pumped to go to church. And I would say, that's okay. And that's where real disciples are actually made is in the healthy habits. Uh, David Mathis uh, out of Bethlehem Seminary, I think is where he's, or at Desiring God, but he's connected all there. Uh, he talked about kind of three channels uh, of this and he called it um, God's voice, God's ear and God's body. Those are the three channels we need to be tapping into in our habits. So God's ear is prayer, that we actually have God's ear, an amazing thing that does comprehend that. And we also have God's voice. We can see our Bible is actually a gift of grace. We actually have the words of God, and that's his voice to us as the scriptures. And then third, God's body, which is the church. So I think we can make sure those three things are healthy habits we're developing in our lives. Uh, put away the Christian culture rules about when you have to read your Bible or when you have to pray, just do it. <laughs> you know, just find times to do it and whatever works best for you. I know guys that are doing audio. I've been trying that so much too. It's audio Bible. It's fantastic. You know, driving around town, listening to scripture. Uh, just, it's, we got to pursue healthy habits 
uh, to, I think, really be in a place where we're walking with Christ in a scriptural manner. If the, if the only time I ever went to the gym was when I authentically felt driven, drawn to the gym, I, I would never go to the gym, right? But I yeah, go to the no. gym because, because I recognize there's a benefit here and whether I like it or not, I show up and, and the good happens because I show up. Yeah, and not be afraid to have a plan. Like I think reading plans are really helpful too, uh, or maybe you're writing out prayers if you have a hard time figuring out what to pray and how to pray. Uh, because, you know, if you're running a marathon, I will never know about that, but running a marathon, so I'm just going to go about what I've heard. Uh, so, uh, there is apps and there's training plans, and, and people take that really seriously. If you're going to go run the Boston Marathon and don't train the stuff, but you're going to be in, in for awakening. Uh, so I want to make sure that I'm having these healthy habits in place. And actually, if I need to put in an actual like guide to help me or a reading plan that a lot of churches provide, there's websites and apps for those. I would never take something that's develop healthy habits. And then what a tragedy if we're like excited and cheer on healthy habits when it comes to physical things. You know, if it's you know, the healthy habit is going to the batting cage every day, you know, if you're a baseball player at a young age, and we, we cheer on that, we champion that. Oh man, he got home late and did his homework and ran outside, took swings for, you know, an hour. So we, we, our course, we champion that. That's fine. That's great. But how much more should we champion? that these habits of the faith actually matter to me. So I think we've got to you see the significance of it and turn down the Christian culture noise and about authenticity and a higher. Healthy habits are good things and we need to make sure we're pursuing this. Somebody who would say, um, you know, I, I this, this is starting to feel legalistic to me. I grew up in a church where it was all measured and, uh, and, and you were judged. Uh, what, what's your response to that? I, I, I don't think you're a bad Christian if you read your Bible five days a week instead of seven. And I don't think you're a bad Christian if you read your Bible before you go to bed instead of in the morning. So notice I said, don't listen to the the actual, you know, rules of you have to at this time. Uh, I see this invitation. Like, why wouldn't we want to pursue God's voice and God's fear and God's body when he's given us these things? So the premise of it is not legalistic. And sometimes you actually do need, like, routines and processes and and kind of prompting and those types of things from people and resources to help us live healthy lives. And so, so don't think that uh, that discipline is necessarily a bad thing or obligation is a bad thing. Like those aren't bad words in the Bible. As long as our heart uh, is converted to Christ, then there are oftentimes where our obligations are really just pushing through the devil's desire to make us not in relationship with the Lord in terms of our fellowship with him. So I would just turn off that noise and not see things like God's voice, God's fear, and God's body as legalistic pursuits. I remember hearing a pastor once say, and this stuck with me, he said, the question we should be asking ourselves is not how much of, of what we have do we give to God's work? The question we should be asking is how much of God's stuff do we keep for ourselves? And all yeah, of a sudden sure. the, the, the reframing of that was like, oh yeah, this none of this is mine. It's all God's. Now the question is how much do I need to function and, and how can I be, for Marianne and me, to, to try to be purposefully, intentionally, aggressively more generous in what we're doing has been a great spiritual blessing and benefit to us. Yeah, in the local church, you're the primary recipient of that generosity. I don't mean exclusively. Uh, there's other ministries and works that are absolutely uh, worth our support. But in the scriptures, we see the first plan, that God's plan A is the local church. So I think our generosity is first and foremost 
I'd go there. Two questions related to that. The uh, the tithe question. Do you think, yeah. th- th- does that still fit for us? So my uncle is a layman in Washington, D.C., an attorney, very generous man. I- I've had conversations about that when I was younger in ministry, about what he thought about that. I should a lot. He told me this one time. It stuck with me. He said, he's not, he's a layman. And he said, the Old Testament standard is 10%. And Jesus said to be generous. You know, Paul, generous. Then when we think it's anything less than that, you know, I know that's just kind of a practical answer more than I had this Bible verse to give you right here. Uh, but I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, and so I think that every Christian shall plan for how he is going to support his local church. I, I say that all the time at our church. Every Christian shall plan for that. Same way to plan for retirement, for budgeting. Um, if we're paying off this debt, whatever it could be, that every Christian has a plan of how they're going to support the local church. And then also see other worthy endeavors that are, that are worth, you know, your your support of, of including the different ministries that may, that you maybe have a heart for or want to help out. And, and I it, can't see it being any less than that if Jesus said be generous. I've never, I've never known Jesus the lesson, you know, the call on people's lives. So, you know, you've got people in your congregation, as we do here, who would go, 10% is impossible. We're struggling month to month. I, I get yeah, to the 25th sure. and I don't have the I don't have it what I need to the 31st. Yeah, and so I think that we need to work towards that, right? I mean, I, I want to show grace to people. I know there are situations in life people are struggling. Uh, but again, he didn't say, we see the person in the, you know, the woman with two coins. It was extremely poor. And she gave the coins, right? And you just said, hey, that that's what I'm talking about. You know, the one who walked up there that drops a little bit, of, he thinks he gave a lot of money, but he's really wealthy. So what he gave was not proportional at all to what he brought home. This lady right here, she's the example. So don't think it's all about, it's more about that proportion is more important than some. And I would say that you just work hard to get to that. And also, if it's the first thing you do, then there's other things you can't afford rather than that. So what my wife and I do is it's the first thing we do is we give because we think that's like our we think that's important to us so that we can't go do can't go to this extra thing we never want what i mean by that bob is we never want to get to a point where we can't afford to give instead we can't afford to do something else yeah i I was saying to somebody recently that typically we've got what we need to get by this month we've got what we're spending above what we need to get by which is to enjoy different aspects of life than what we're putting aside in savings and then what we're giving. So if we had those four buckets, survival, um, beyond survival, savings, and giving, uh, we're in a time where people, there's constriction, you know, with inflation, people are going, I, I don't have, my spending power doesn't go as far. I've, I've said, here's what I would recommend, rather than constricting across the board, and rather than saying, well, the first place I'm gonna go is I'm gonna shrink my giving, I'd keep your giving intact, I'd make it first, and then figure out where you shrink in the other areas from there. Yeah, and, and in the New Testament, that wouldn't be considered crazy, right? We've just been so immersed by our first world understanding of these things that for us, that sounds, that sounds very radical, what you're saying. You know, I, I, David Platt was called radical, and he said he struggled by calling it radical because what he's calling radical, the Bible is called normal. Right. <laughs> right? Like, he just called the book normal Christianity, right? So I understand that, but it's hard for, it's hard for everyone. Like we're, our church is in a big vision fund right now. We're trying to double our missions giving in our next generation ministry spaces. Uh, so like every family in our church right now, myself and Glitter have these hard conversations about what can we cut out for the next two years to give towards this. Uh, so and we want to, you know, we want to get to a point where we're putting mo- more min- more missionaries on the field than ever before through our church. And that costs a lot of money and to expand our next generation stuff. So like, it's always a conversation we're having. Yeah, but I think every Christian needs a plan for how they're going to support their church. This, this is just a little sidebar question, but I'm curious about this. We, we have... 
as a pattern. I've just made it my practice that I don't know who's giving or what they're giving at our church. I'm just, I'm, I'm not aware of that. But I've I'm had people- On the same way. I've had people challenge me on that and say, how can you disciple these people well if you don't know what they're doing in terms of their giving? And, and you, you may have people in your congregation who need to be pulled aside and discipled because they're not given today. Now, I think that to get a report saying that these people do not give ever is different than you getting amounts and, you know, those type of things. And that can be unfair because we don't know what people make, right? We don't know what's going on in their lives. Right. But I do think it's a disciple of opportunity, you know, because because good deal says their heart, right? Yeah, it's right. You. It's a heart issue before it's cash flow issue, right? So I, I don't do it because I don't trust myself. Yeah. And I don't mean, I don't mean financially. I mean bitterness, right. favoritism. Right. You know, so I just think it kind of walks me down a, a, a bad path. You know, I, I, I want to be the guy that only plays golf, the five rich guys in the church, you know? <laughs> That's insane, right? That's yeah, insane. right. You know, so I, I mean, so I'm not dumb. I know who has money and who doesn't, right? Can't hide money, right, Bob? So, um, <laughs> but, but it's like, you know, the old thing, but yeah, yeah, I'm just, that's a little gray. I don't think it's wrong to, but I just, I, I, I do think it's important to know that, or if someone knows in the church, you know, if uh, if no one, if, if you never give. And then I'll, I'll set up a great conversation. Hey, what's going on? You know, what's going on? And they might get an answer that's going to help you walk with somebody. Gavin Ortland's book on this subject has been very helpful yeah. for me. It's called yeah, finding, cool. finding the Right Hill to Die On that helps you identify these these different issues and know, okay, what what do need to be the primary fundamental issues? And I would also say this, see if you agree with me on this, Dean. Um, somebody who is a, a an immature, a young, new Christian can be ignorantly wrong on a first tier issue and still be a Christian they just can't be knowingly wrong on that issue and still be a Christian. You think that's, a, so I'm, I'm thinking somebody who is new to the faith, they've just been yeah. converted and you go to them and say, so let, let me talk about uh, the, the Trinity and how we understand the Trinity, three persons. And, and they go, well, it's kind of like, like sometimes God is manifesting himself this way. And sometimes he's manifesting himself that way. And you go, eh, no, that's, that's an ancient heresy that you're espousing there. But I'm not throwing them. I'm not saying you're not a Christian because yeah. you're spouting heresy. You're just ignorant here. I completely agree with you on that, Bob. Completely agree. Okay. And that's where grace comes in, right? Like, like we actually need to believe Jesus when he talks about mustard seed faith, childlike faith, right? And, and, and so the responsibility is the church now to then take this brand new baby believer and all the Lord of maturity. Right? And so, oh yeah, you could definitely, I, I agree with hundreds of what you said. And so, then if, but if somebody comes along and says, I've looked at this, I've studied this, I've prayed about this, I, and I, what I've concluded is modalism. Then, then I go, uh, well, um, no problem. Yeah, no problem. yeah, we're, we're okay. And let me, let me toss this at you just in this culture. And it's one of the issues I asked Gavin Ortland about this when I talked to him on the subject. Uh, are our views about gender and sexuality first tier issues or are they second tier issues? You know, I think it's first. I, I really do. And I, if I'm being extreme there, please tell me. But if we're directly rejecting what God has made, I think we're rejecting God. I mean, that's the example in Romans that Paul gives yeah. for what rebellion for what rebellion looks like against our creator. Now, I think you can be a genuine believer and be struggling with it because you're so immersed with culture all the time, or or maybe you have a family member and just like, man, it's difficult, it's hard. You know, the reason why Jesus said pick up your cross and follow me, it's hard. Right? It's hard. You know, I'm so 
so I think you could be that person, like wrestling and having moments of like, well, what about this? I, again, I want to give room for that. No ultimate room forever, but like a conversation. But if you just outright are embracing the sexual and gender revolution, I don't know how you can get a born again believer in Jesus Christ and directly reject what God has made clear. Yeah. And I tell our church, I tell our church, we're a church full of college students, we're in Tallahassee, a political town. And I, and I tell our church, I say, guys, the Bible's teaching on gender and sexuality is as clear in the scriptures as love your neighbor and Jesus rising from the grave. <laughs> I mean, it is that clear in the Bible. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, if, I'm, if I'm being too hard for there, please tell me, but I just don't think you can. So, sorry, read Romans 1. And in Romans 1, Paul could have, on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, could have used any example he wanted of what rebellion against God looks like. And what did he choose? He chose same-sex relations yeah. as the example of rebellion against God. I don't want what you've given me. I want something else. Uh, so that's all of our problem, not in a sexuality way, but that that posture of God, no thanks. I don't want you. I want what I want. Yeah. Uh, and that's why that does happen in the Garden of Eden, right? And so, but yeah, I just don't, I, I don't think so. I I think you're right and, yeah. and appreciate it. All right. So I got the, I won't run through all five of them again. What's number six? Last one is uh, a missional heart. So I think following Jesus in maturity means I'll follow them into the world. Uh, I'm always struck by some of the last recorded words we have of Jesus before Revelation uh, in all the Bible is the Great Commission, the very end of Matthew. At the end of Luke, he says, you'll be my witnesses. Uh, and that after he's on, he's on the Emmaus Road, he says that. And he's having breakfast with them, he says that. And then in Acts, before he leaves, the last thing he says is go to Samaria and Judea to the ends of the earth, right? So so I think that mature Christians have to have a heart for the lost and have that, that missional heart, missional impulse. So it's going to the context going different for everybody, but a heart for the lost. To me, I don't ever more like Jesus than we're caring about the lost. And I think that really matters. Our theology should drive that. If if uh, I'm looking at our church and asking on, this, on those six identifiers, where are we the weakest? I think number six is where the, we're the weakest. I'm just wondering, would you grade your church differently? And and if so, yeah. what are you doing to help cultivate missional heartedness among your people? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I do believe we're not perfect there, but I do believe I would consider us strong there. And uh, I would say what it is is we've incorporated that as part of what it means to be a serious follower of Christ. I, in terms of like, that's part of our discipleship model is like, what, do we, what does this lead to? Uh, so we always say that we want to have a, a discipleship that that results in following Jesus as we go into the world. And so I think you just make it part of who you are, part of what it means to know Christ, is to let our light shine before others, to build relationships, to not remove ourselves from the world, and also not resemble the world, but to be in the world. And I, so I, what we do is we just really make it part of, and that's what we celebrate. Like We make a huge deal about baptisms and a huge deal about somebody bringing their friend, and, and we take that really seriously when they come. So we just make it part of the win. So we're gonna get you know, if, if the we're told Luke fifteen the angels rejoice over one sinner who repents right that one makes a big we're gonna make a big deal about that too uh, so I, I'm not trying to give some like kind of vague generic answer but it really is just such built in part of who we are and it's not too late for a church to do that to just say hey look like we want to figure out like what does it look like to take these beautiful things we believe and take them outside of here uh, because people lots of people aren't coming to church period unless a trusted friend invites them. So you can have the best outreach plans and the great, and that's only going to go so far. You see so much return on those kind of things, at least in my experience, it leaves the church more discouraged than anything. Uh, but 
Uh, like I think I think trunk trunk retreats are wonderful. I've never met someone who started coming to church and get led to Christ and became the trunk retreat two weeks before. I just have I think it's a great, nice way to be loving and involved and giving like a gift to the community. But I but that's a good thing. I'm not, not making fun of it or disparaging those. So I'm just saying that people come to church because they're invited. Well, like I've never met I've never met someone before who said, uh, they have a band. Wow, I'm going next Sunday. <laughs> Oh, the pastor's the pastor's funny. I'm going next. I've never met that person before. You know, people go with the, to the exception of like a national tragedy or a tragedy in their life. Right. Like after September 11th, after September 11th, everybody was Christians for like two days. Remember that? <laughs> um, you know, or you know things like that. Um, people come to church on the arm of their trusted friends. So we want our folks to love their church enough to want their folks to want to invite their friends to be a part of it. But again, the goal is not getting in the church. We think that's a great avenue and pathway. The point of Christ. We think people need to be willing to have gospel conversations and be able to open their mouths about these things in the community and, and, not, and not think outside their own context. Your biggest mission field is probably people you already know, you know, like co-workers, family members, neighbors. Uh, so I think a lot of times our evangelism understanding has been towards atheists and agnostics who are skeptics. That's why I wrote Unsafe Christian, was because I'm going, no, 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 those exist for sure, but in your community, most people you know are not atheists. Most people you know are not Muslims. Now, different parts of the country, that story's a little bit different. But for most of us, the majority of people that we know just kind of think they're good people and they're fine. They're kind of like, whatever. They're spiritual. They have a Christian background. Um, they might go to church on Mother's Day because it makes Nana happy. But they don't know Jesus. So this is a wide open opportunity already. People right in front of us don't go looking very far uh, to start living your life on mission. But it begins with actually a heart for the loss and our theology should lead to that. There are a lot of people today who would look at this whole idea of inviting a friend, a coworker to church as maybe one of the riskiest things you can do in this cultural yeah, environment. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's like, I don't want to, I don't want to mess up the relationship or wind up, you know, completely canceled, disenfranchised. They never talked to me again. Cause I said, do you want to go to church with me sometime? Right. So build that relationship for as long as possible. And I think that we have to make sure we have churches that people trust with their lost friends. So no one's going to invite someone to a church they secretly aren't excited about themselves. So we want to have churches that are that our folks are relationally connected to enough. They've seen the proof of the pudding that you're going to preach the word, you're going to share for people, um, that uh, you are going to have an environment of grace. You're going to make sure that people understand what the Bible says in that setting. Notice nothing I mentioned was about style. Well, I noticed I didn't mention style. Right. That's overrated. Um, but instead, we I think, but I but what matters is if I bring my friend here, I know the kids ministry face the kids ministry face is going to be clean, and the workers are going to be friendly, and they're going to be they're going to take great care of my friend's kids. Like like you, like I know that shot of a doubt that if I invite my friend to my Sunday school class, people are going to talk to them, and they're going to be friendly. And you know, all see all those kind of things are. I, I know that my pastor is not going to go on a political rant that he's not going to be insensitive about things that are just his preferences, you know, like, like that kind of confidence in the whole thing that people have, I think are things you don't think about enough when it comes to church. Right. Because yeah. okay. in, in our cynical culture, they'll give you one shot. So if, if somebody looks at that list and goes, boy, I'm, I'm weak in a lot of these areas, does that mean I'm not a disciple? No, I think it just means that you're immature in your faith and that's not defined by age. So I think the first Corinthians two and three where Paul is is getting on the believers, he calls them brothers and sisters. So they're they're his they're believers. He's getting on them, and he still has to give them milk and not solid food. And then by now, you should be eating solid food. 
Um, you know, if you're, you don't expect the baby to eat solid food. If a six-year-old can't eat solid food, it's, it's serious. You go to a, you go to a specialist. And that happens, right? They yeah, right. Specialist. So that's how you need to view it. So, so I think it's just time, maybe time to, to sort of get, get out of the car seat, you know, move to a booster seat and then keep going from there. I've got one last question, but anybody here got a question you want to ask? Okay, Josh has got one. Hang on. I'll give you this one because I are, don't think are, you can are hear we in Ar- Are we in Arkansas, by the way? Yes, yes. Okay. With, with your research on uh, discipleship, at, and then you wrote a book called The Uns... What was it? Unsaved Christian? Yeah. Have you ever read Gilbert Tennant's uh, sermon on the dangers of an unconverted minister? Oh, you know, I, I know the name Gilbert Tennant, but when you said the name, yes, I think I... His I father was William Tennant that started Log Cabin College, which is now Princeton. Okay. Yep. When, when you're when you're talking about that and you're going through these things that make a disciple, that, that reminded me a lot of his sermon. So I was just curious cool. if you ever did any oh, research cool. on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, I read that somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Appreciate it. Sorry. My last question is, given the Patriots record, are you still in? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's, it's discouraging times, but uh, they all got a quarterback controversy, but Mac Jones or is it? Yeah, Zachy? yeah. So I mean, Jones played, yeah, he's getting better, but... Uh, he played well against the Jets, but oh yeah, absolutely still it. Yeah, it's just you know when you, when you lose the greatest quarterback of all time, it's going to be rough for a little bit. It wasn't just a Brady thing for you. You didn't switch your allegiance to Tampa. Oh no, so I follow Tampa now. I, I call them my rental second favorite team. <laughs> so he's only I'm only with the Bucks as long as he's there as a second favorite. Team. Second he's gone, I don't. <laughs> so, yeah, the pick. Well, one thing is, at least some things remain the same. Still so beat the Jets. <laughs> so. So something the main thing. These guys know I'm a San Antonio Spurs fan and have been for many years. And uh, I, I think um, Popovich always said that you can be a really great coach if Tim Duncan is is on your team. <laughs> and yeah. I think we're seeing now that yes, that was a bigger deal than we realized. Uh, uh, yeah. So oh, yeah. so is Belichick a great coach? He's a great coach. Uh, I I think they needed each other, but I think that um, Brady has won without Belichick. Belichick has never won without Brady. Yeah. All right. We'll we'll pick up with sports talk more next time. <laughs> I love it. And I guess everybody's Cowboys fans there. I would guess. So yes, it, it's uh, there's a little Mississippi State allegiance here that's got a Prescott following mm-hmm. there, and and Dallas would be the closest, but it's been hard to be a Cowboys fan for the last three decades. So all my alma mater is playing the Hogs this weekend. Yes. So go nationally ranked Liberty University. I know. I know. I'm and, for you. And, and honestly, we're a little worried about your 7-1 and one Flames coming in here and hosing the Razorbacks. So we're ready. I hope you're not. <laughs> <laughs> Dean, thank you. This has been helpful. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Yeah. I'm always enjoying it. I'm always grateful for your ministry. Thanks. Appreciate you. Thanks. If you would like more information on the Bible study book written by Dean and Sarah called Marks of a Disciple, Six Measurements for Growth, you'll find that online. We've got a link to it in our show notes, or you can just Google the book title Marks of a Disciple by Dean and Sarah. Links available in the show notes, along with information about Dean's church, City Church in Tallahassee, and other books that he's written, including his book, The Unsaved Christian, and his new book on purity find all of that in the show notes for today's podcast. Speaking of the podcast, have you subscribed? Have you liked it? Have you written a review? If you'll do those things, you'll help us get the word out to other pastors and planters about this podcast. If you're finding these conversations helpful, 
help us share the word with others. Pass along links to your friends so that they can listen or just write a review, like or subscribe to this podcast, and that will help us get the word out as well. Now, next time on The Bounce, we're going to talk with Jim Newhouser. He is the director of the Christian Counseling Program at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. And Jim is going to introduce us to the 16 people you don't want to have show up at your church. And and you've met some of them. I'm not talking about specific people. I'm talking about the kinds of people who show up week in and week out and make ministry more challenging. In fact, Jim says these are the people who cause you to be tempted to want to quit the ministry altogether. We'll hear from Jim Newhouser next time on The Bounce.